Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Matthew Bloomfield. I'm a little bit apprehensive about giving this message um, because it's not an easy one. Um, But it is a message from Jesus to his church living at the end of time. So it's worth worth studying about. Jesus said, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's probably some of the harshest words that Jesus gave. And with that in mind, uh, because this is a, it's a, a, a difficult topic, um, I'm just going to start us off in prayer um, so that we can make sure that we, we approach this in the right way and that we receive it in the right way. Uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that uh, the message uh, given in Revelation 3 is a message uh, from you to your church. But Lord, we just ask that you would help us to be ready to receive it. Uh, Lord, as, as we sung this morning, there's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be here to guide your words, uh, that he would be here to touch our hearts and to open them uh, to your leading. Uh, Lord, if this message applies to to anyone here, uh, please help them to take it to heart. Uh, Lord, if it doesn't, uh, help help those people to, to get something from this message as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Harsh words, wouldn't you say? It's what, one of the, as I said, one of the most scathing rebukes that Jesus gave in all of Scripture. And it's, it's to a group of professed Christians. Jesus says that he will vomit them out of his mouth. And the scariest part of all this is that these people don't even realize that there's anything wrong with them. In fact, they think they're pretty good. They think they're very good. Could we be part of this group? Could you be part of this group? Could I? Uh, That's what we're going to find out uh, this morning as we go through it. In the first chapters of Revelation, Jesus gives messages uh, to seven churches. Not only were these messages for seven actual churches uh, that existed at the time, uh, but as we study into them, we see that they were messages uh, that uh, apply throughout time. They're they're sort of a a special sort of time prophecy, if you will, kind of. Uh, they, They trace God's church from the time of Jesus right through to the second coming. Uh, They also apply in a number of other ways, but that's how we're going to look at it today. Uh, They also apply in the way that uh, we see that Christians tend to go through 
this pattern of these seven churches in their lifetime. And you may be at any one of these points, but we're going to look at the last one. Uh, the message to the church of Laodicea. Let's have a read through, and you can open your Bibles. Let's just have a quick read through of it uh, so that we're all on the, the same page. Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to be uh, bouncing around the Bible, and I'll have most of the verses on the screen, but it's good for you to see the body of this uh, in the text. Revelation chapter 3. And we're skipping ahead to the end of the chapter. We're looking at, well, partway through. Verse 14 is where we're going to start. Revelation chapter 3, and we're starting in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can just listen along and I'll read through it. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now today, there's a few parts to that message, but today we're just going to see if this could apply to us. We're going to have a look at some of the Bible characteristics of a lukewarm Christian. Uh, and then perhaps at a later date, uh, we'll go into a bit more detail as to how to correct that. So, the first thing we see as we look through, well, the first thing I saw and the first thing on the PowerPoint, as to what a lukewarm Christian is, is they don't know their own condition. In Revelation 3, and verse 17 as we just read, it says, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What a contrast, eh? From thinking that you're rich, wealthy, and you don't need anything, uh, but actually being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And that's perhaps the most disconcerting thing about the Laodiceans, the lukewarm Christian, they don't, they don't know. Um, so you could argue there's not much point giving this message, but hopefully this will make you aware uh, if some of these things apply to you. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, Paul writes, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, 
He deceives himself. Sort of self-evident, but it applies, doesn't it, to the lukewarm Christian. They're deceiving themselves, uh, perhaps unconsciously. You know, it's, it's vital that we know what our current condition is. Uh, what's really going on in our hearts and how that stacks up against what God's Word says. You see, we come to church on Sabbath. Um, I don't know what your, your personal Bible study is like, but for most of the day, uh, we're being pulled every which way. There are a thousand voices in our day uh, trying to change the way we think about ourselves and about uh, the world. So we have all these voices pulling, pulling us every which way and distorting our thinking. So that's why we need to stop occasionally and assess how we're actually doing. Uh, we should always be asking God to show us our true condition. That way, uh, that we can, that way we can really realize our need of God and make changes in our lives if needed. Paul encourages self-reflection in his writing. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. What about you? Do you know your true condition? Have you asked God lately to show you you need to. Um, a powerful example of this, or at least one that stood out to me in the Bible, is the example of Samson. He never, or appears to never stop and, and assess his situation. Um, if he did, perhaps he would have seen um, each of the decisions he was making uh, was leading him further and further away from God. As we know, Samson's wife, Delilah, had been working away at Samson for some time. And finally, Samson uh, deliberately disobeyed God. And in doing so, he removed God's supernatural protection of him. Now let's, let's have a read of that passage. You can go there in your Bibles. To the book of Judges. Chapter 16, and verses 20 and 21. So, uh, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Delilah, Samson's wife, is desperately, she's secretly working for the enemies of Samson uh, and God's people. And she's desperately trying to find out what makes Samson so strong. And she keeps on working at him and keeps on asking him. And then we, we get to the point where Samson's just fed up uh, with her bothering him. Let's read uh, verse 20 and 21. And she, that's Delilah, said, uh, this is after uh, Samson has told her, what makes him so strong, and Delilah has cut off his hair, uh, which was a requirement that God gave to him to not cut his hair, and he would protect him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He was asleep. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. 
but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. He didn't realize. He thought it was just like every other time. He thought he still had God's supernatural strength working in him. But it wasn't just like every other time. He disobeyed God uh, persistently. Um, he had drowned out God's voice. And then we read in verse 21 what happened next. Then the Philistines, his enemies, took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and, that, and he became a grinder in the prison. Can you imagine that? One day going to face a trial, thinking that, that you're all that and, and that God is on your side and, and realizing that he's not, that, that you've pushed him away for so long, uh, that, that power isn't there. That power that you thought was there uh, is there no longer. It's lethal, as we see in this case, to not know what your true condition is. And this, this is really applicable to us today. You know, every week it seems there's something new on the news, uh, some new calamity, some new disaster, some new event that points to prophetic things taking place. Um, we know that the Bible says that there will be uh, trials unlike anything we've experienced before in the end times. And so it's, it's vital that we're able to approach those knowing uh, that we have God working in us. The second sign of a lukewarm Christian. By the way, there are five signs. So uh, if you want to count your way through the sermon and, and know how far through we are, you can do that. Second sign, a lukewarm Christian. If you are lukewarm, you don't desire to be closer to God. You see... A lukewarm Christian is content with where they are at spiritually. That is, they don't have a strong longing to know more about God and his word. They don't have a strong longing for Jesus to change their character. They, already, they think they already have everything sorted. You see, it's possible to know a great deal about God, about the Bible. It's possible to have a lot of knowledge but never take that knowledge to heart. Never ask God to come into your life and to change you. You see, you may have had experiences in the past where you saw God working 10, 20 years ago. But perhaps you didn't continue to seek God. Or you didn't seek Him daily. You didn't draw nearer to Him. And that is certainly the case for those lukewarm Christians, isn't it? It's because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. They have need of nothing. They think they are rich, but Jesus says that they are wretched, miserable, and poor. Their desire to get closer to God has disappeared. They are satisfied with their own achievements. You know, as we read through the Bible, um, we get glimpses of what it is like to have a true longing and true passion for God. You know, I see this especially in the writings of the Psalms. Uh, the psalmist here describes his desire for God to get closer to God. 
In Psalms 42.1, that familiar passage says, As the deer pants for the water, so pants my soul for you, O God. Is your desire for God like a, a strong thirst, something that, that has to be quenched? Does that describe you at the moment? Another psalm. This is one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I might, may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Is that your desire in life? To be dwelling with God? That's the sort of question uh, that we need to be asking ourselves. In Jeremiah 29, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Does that describe you? If not, you may have a problem. Third point, third sign uh, that you may be a lukewarm Christian. You see, the more we truly know God, the greater our desire should be. They sort of bounce off each other. The more we get to know God, the more we should want to get to know God because he who does not, know, does not love does not know God, for God is love. You might be familiar with that verse, but do you believe that? Do you? That's good. Do you really believe that God is love? Do you, do you know that God really loves you? If, you see, if the lukewarm Christians mentioned in Revelation 3 truly know God and his character, they wouldn't be so confident in their own riches, would they? In fact, those that God, that heaven recognizes as holy, are often, well, are the last to, to boast about their own holiness and goodness. Uh, the closer we get to God, the greater we see that he is, the more loving that he is, and the more miserable our own characters look like in comparison. In describing a, a similar group, I would say the same group, Jesus says in Matthew 7, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's a lot in that passage, but notice that even though these people are doing seemingly wonderful acts, they didn't know Jesus. He says, I never knew you. They never had an abiding relationship with him. Knowing God and his character is essential to being a Christian. In fact, it's vital. Jesus says so in John 17 and verse 3. He says, and this, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
you know, if Jesus says, and this is eternal life, and is about to tell you what eternal life is all about, um, it's worth paying attention to. He says that we know God, uh, that we know his Son. Point number four. If you only have a form of godliness. Those people described in Revelation 3, they had an outward display of religion. They were, they were rich and increased with goods, and you know, that not only applies to physical goods, but spiritual goods. They weren't ignorant, they weren't stupid. Um, but their outward goods was where, where their journey ended. Let's open our Bibles again to 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. In the New Testament, all all the T's are together, sort of. Uh, Timothy, Titus, and Thessalonians. 2 Timothy. Sorry, Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I'm talking about the last days here. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, reckless, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. There's a a pretty extensive list of of horrible, horrible, horrible acts and folk, wouldn't you say? covers most things, sounds like a a pretty horrible world. And, you know, if we stop reading that passage right there, uh, we'd say, oh, yeah, that's the world in general, or wicked bunch that they are. But if we keep reading to the next verse, verse 5, let's see what it says. It says, these people are having a form of godliness, but denying its power. From such people, turn away. Did you catch that? It says that these people have a form of godliness. You know, certainly those things that we talked about apply to the world at large. We know that. Um, but he says that these people have a form of godliness. They potentially go to church. But, it says, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Paul says that they're denying God's power to work in their lives. Now, you may be a lukewarm Christian if you don't see God working in your life. If he's not working in your your life to change your character to be more like that of Jesus. While we live... Uh, in a sinful world, there will, there will always be trials and temptations and, and perhaps we will fail 
Um, but if you're continually falling into the exact same sin that you were falling into 10, 20, or 30 years ago, uh, then you've got a problem. It may be that you've never completely surrendered yourself to God and died to self, as the Bible says we should. In spite of asking for forgiveness, you may never have made a total choice of letting God change you. Perhaps you've been trying to sort it out for yourself for that time. Like those Laodiceans who were relying just on themselves and their own riches. You see, God is willing and able to change us if we give our lives over to him completely. In fact, he promises that he will do just that. In 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In fact, at the end of the message to that lukewarm church in Revelation, Jesus promises that if those who are lukewarm come to him and allow him to work in their lives, uh, he will do this for them. It says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Would you like to be included in that group? Yeah, I, I want to. <laughs> Point number five. The Holy Spirit is not working in your life. You may be a lukewarm Christian if the Holy Spirit is not working in your life. You see, all those things that we've talked about so far, it's essential that the Holy Spirit works in our lives to address them. If you haven't asked the Holy Spirit to work in your life, or perhaps if you have been ignoring the Holy Spirit for too long, you may be lukewarm in your relationship with God. In Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins. In this story, ten virgins are waiting for a groom to arrive so that they can attend a wedding. Five of them take extra oil for their lamps. Five do not. While they are waiting, they all fall asleep. And at midnight, the groom arrives. The five with oil are able to go into the wedding. The five without have to go and buy more oil and miss out on attending the wedding because the door is closed. What we were talking about in the study this morning out in the foyer, we're talking about that door being closed. It's the same door. You see, this parable illustrates Jesus' return and those who are waiting for him. It's talking about the church, all those virgins that are, that are waiting patiently for the groom to return. The oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Even though the, the whole church falls asleep in that parable, those who are prepared with the Holy Spirit working in their lives are ready to meet Jesus. How do you know if the Holy Spirit is working in your life? In John 16 and verse 8, 
in describing the work of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, Jesus says, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. If you don't feel convicted of your sinfulness and of, of your need for Jesus and his righteousness, then the Holy Spirit isn't working in your life. Remember that verse from earlier where Jesus said that he will tell some professed Christians uh, to depart from him? He says, I never knew you, had no relationship with him, and because they had no relationship with him, he says, they practice lawlessness. God wasn't able to work in their lives because they never came to him. So he wasn't able to change them. Because, you see, another role of the Holy Spirit is that he empowers us to obey God. God never asks us to change ourselves without his help. In Ezekiel 36.27, this is a, a good promise. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So as we talked about earlier, if you're not experiencing any changes or victories in your character, then you may not have the Holy Spirit working in you, and you may be lukewarm. Just as a side note, I'm not saying this because I'm up here and because I'm perfect. I'm sharing this because there's a message Jesus gave to his end-time church. Looking at those five points, you may be thinking, perhaps one or two of those apply to me. Perhaps you, you don't see God working in your life. Perhaps you've never asked for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Maybe all of those things apply to you right now. I would say don't panic, but you know, perhaps a little bit of panic is appropriate in this case. At the end of the message... Uh, to the lukewarm Christians, notice this, what Jesus says. He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. God doesn't give us th this harsh message because he wants to point out our, our, our faults and belittle us and make us feel bad. He gives us this message because he loves us. He wants us to, to be with him for eternity. At the end of the study this morning, what's God's desire for us? We talked about yeah. Yeah. He wants us to come to repentance. Because he wants us to be saved. Um, that, that's what Christ's whole ministry was about. God is willing to go to the greatest lengths possible to see us saved. Um, you know, sometimes we, we need our faults pointed out so uh, that we can seek a solution. You know, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, he said, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Solomon is saying, you know, 
life can't be all fun and games. Um, you know, sometimes it's good to stop and consider the eternal realities uh, that are before us. You know, what is number one in my life? When I wake up in the morning, uh, what's, what's my desire for the day? Is it to go and do my own thing? Or is it to, to seek God a bit more closely first? Where am I headed in life? You know, if the Holy Spirit's not working in your life to change you, someone else certainly is working in your life to change you. The world is constantly surrounding us. Oh, we need God's help. Oh, we need Him living in us. Yeah. Am I really making use of the promises that God is offering to me? When we read through the Bible, it's absolutely littered with, with offers of help from God and the things that He promises to give us. If we take time to, to stop and look at them, God is bending over backwards to, to do things for us. He's just saying, let me do it. Uh, we just need to let him do that. That's right. At the end of the messages are given to the seven churches in Revelation, I want you to notice the invitation that Jesus gives. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What a beautiful picture, eh? You see, God is loving and respectful. He's not going to force himself into your life. That's how, how Satan works. God respects our, our decisions. He respects our free will. He's knocking at the door. He's simply waiting for you to open it and let him in. What does that mean? It means ask him. Ask him into your life. Uh, perhaps you've been coming to church for a long time, maybe even all your life, and maybe you've only ever had a mediocre experience with God. Maybe you were passionate about God a while back. Um, but the disappointments and distractions of life have gotten in the way and you're kind of ho-hum at the moment. Maybe you've never really asked Jesus into your life. Whatever your situation, the solution is the same. And it's certainly none of those things are a problem that's too big for God if you ask him to help you. He's not asking you to change yourself. He wants to work in you to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, there'll be challenges in life, but God provides for us a way of meeting those challenges. With that invitation in mind, Jesus standing at the door, knocking, just waiting for you to, to make that full commitment to him. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm done with messing about. I want to let you in. I want you to take control of my life. And just decide for yourself, are you going to open that door?
This message was made available by the Masterton Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit mastertonsda.nz.
that was Fountain View Academy singing The Savior is Waiting. Up next, Marlita Fong will sing Captive to the Call.
Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today's story has a rather unusual title. I cried when a plant died. And it's about a self-centred prophet. This story is based on the book of Jonah. When I look back at the period of my life I'm about to relate to you, I am filled with regret and just trust and pray that God will forgive me for failing him. My name is Jonah from Gath Hepha in Galilee. My father's name is Amittai. About the time Jeroboam II became king of the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital is Samaria, God told me to give a warning message to the people of Nineveh. This was about 150 years after the death of Solomon. Nineveh was a principal city of the Assyrian Empire and their capital city for part of their time in power. The Ninevites were a warlike and wicked people. Other nations feared them. God's charge both frightened and frustrated me. Why should I give that city a message from God when I thought they were not worth saving? What would happen to me in wandering through that great city? It was about 12 kilometres around its circumference and took days to walk through all its many streets. I decided that the best thing I could do was to put myself so far away from Nineveh that God would have to commission another prophet to do what I thought would be a waste of time. So I headed for the port of Joppa, found a ship that was bound for Tarshish on the southern coast of Spain, a long, long way over the great sea, and paid the fare. I found a bunk in the lower part of the ship and promptly went to sleep. The ship commenced its voyage by first heading in a northerly direction, and then the plan was to head westward. At first, the winds were fair, but soon after our course was set, a violent wind, seemingly coming from all directions, turned the calm sea into a boiling fury. The sailors immediately did everything they could to keep control of the ship. The next thing I knew, I was roughly awoken, with the captain standing over me saying, What are you doing, just lying here while the ship is about to sink? You'd better pray to your God, whoever he might be, so he can save us if he is able. Desperate now, the sailors said, Let us cast lots to see who is the guilty person who has caused this disaster to come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on me. The captain asked me all sorts of questions such as, What do you do? And... What country are you from? When I told them why I had booked passage in the ship, they couldn't believe I was disobeying my God, causing this dreadful storm and putting all their lives in danger. Well, they said, you've caused us all this trouble. Now you better tell us how to save the lives of everyone on board so the ship is not smashed to pieces. Accepting my fate and sensing that I knew what had to be done, I replied, you must throw me into the sea and then it will be calm again. This seemed to them to be a very drastic step to take. 
So they kept rowing on the ship's great oars, but nothing they could do made the situation any better. They prayed to God, asking him not to punish them for the action they were about to take. You, O Lord, have done what you knew was best, they said. Then they picked me up and threw me overboard. At that instant, the waves were calm. Then I felt like I was slithering down a slippery chute into a soft, smelly place. I realised that God in his mercy had prepared a very large fish to swallow me until I came to my senses. O Lord, you have not forsaken me as I ran away from you. Please save me out of the sea inside the belly of this great fish. The rest of my prayer is at the end of my story. After three days and three nights, God must have spoken to the fish, for it spewed me out onto the beach. At last, I was on dry land again. God had not forgotten the commission he had given me, so he spoke to me again, saying, Get up now and go to the great city of Nineveh and tell the people the message I have given you. This time I did as the Lord commanded and went straight to Nineveh. It was indeed a mighty city, one of the greatest cities of the world in our time. After commencing on the first day's walk through the city, I called out as loudly as I could, In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. To my surprise, the people repented of their wicked ways. Even the king came down from his throne, took off his royal robes, put on a cloak of sackcloth and sat in ashes as a sign of repentance and sorrow for the wickedness of himself and his people. He sent a proclamation to all the citizens of the city that they and their animals were not to eat or drink. They must be clothed in sackcloth and call out loudly in true repentance to the great God of heaven for the wicked things they had done. Perhaps, the king said, God will not do to us what he said he would do and we may be saved. In his kindness and mercy, God accepted the repentance of the king and the people of Nineveh. He saw they were truly sorry for their sins and for the violent lives they had lived in bringing destruction and death to so many of the people they had conquered. So God decided the Ninevites would not die, but would be allowed to live to demonstrate the genuineness of their repentance. Nineveh was built many years before by Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, who lived not many years after the Great Flood. I sadly confess here that I was not happy that God had virtually made a liar out of me, or so I thought at the time. Ah, Lord, this is exactly why I took the ship in the opposite direction to Nineveh, for I just knew you would be kind to them, showing mercy to that wicked people and not punishing them as I had prophesied. I've been made to look a fool, so you might as well kill me right here and now, for it would be better for me to die and not live." The Lord had every right to discipline me for speaking to him like that. But instead he said, Do you really think you have a right to be angry that I have taken the action that I have in not destroying the people of Nineveh? Not knowing what would happen next, I decided to go outside the city, build myself a little shelter on a rise from where I could see what action the Lord would take. 
No sooner had I finished the shelter than a plant started to grow over the shelter with large, thick leaves that made a wonderful shade from the hot sun. I realised that God had made the plant to grow so quickly. I was very grateful for that. By now it was nightfall, and after such an eventful day, I lay down in the shelter and slept soundly until the light of the new day awoke me. To my horror, I saw that something must have eaten the roots of the plant during the night. It had then shriveled up in the extremely hot east wind that blew out of the desert. The blistering sun and oven-hot wind sapped my strength in a very short time. I felt faint, and I thought I was going to die. I said aloud, This heat is going to kill me, so I might as well be dead. I wept at the thought that I might die just because this plant was no longer there to give me shelter. At that moment, God spoke to me, so I listened intently to what he had to say. Do you think you are excused for being angry that this plant died? Yes, I do, Lord. I really do think I have every reason to be angry that my shelter has disappeared. What the Lord said next really brought me up with a start. Your priorities are all wrong. Here is this plant that grew quickly and died just as quickly, and you are unhappy that this mere plant died. Shouldn't I have pity on the hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh who have repented of their sins? I've extended my great mercy to them, so you should be grateful I've also been merciful to you. This experience, this encounter with God, changed my whole attitude. God made me see that people are of far more worth than things, and that when people turn to God and truly repent of their wicked ways, then it is God's right to forgive them in his great mercy and compassion. And that includes me. The following is the prayer that I prayed after the great fish had spewed me out onto the dry land. I prayed urgently to the Lord because of all my terrible troubles, and he heard my humble prayer. Out of the mighty depths I cried, and God heard my plea. He had thrown me into the deep sea, into the midst of the stormy waters. The great sea completely surrounded me, and the waves were far over my head. Then I said, O Lord, I have been banished from your presence, yet even so I will try to look towards your holy temple. The water completely enveloped me, and great strands of seaweed wrapped around my head. I sank lower and lower, even to the foundations of the mountains. I thought the prison bars of the earth had slammed shut behind me forever. Yet you have lifted me up from that dreadful place, O oh my God, when I was left with no hope at all. It was then that I remembered that only the Lord could help me. So I prayed to the Lord in his holy temple. People who give their allegiance to worthless idols are turning their backs on the loving kindness of God. But I will bring my sacrifices to him as I sing songs of praise. I will pay the vows I have made. Salvation comes only from the Lord. I now have a short quiz for you. What was Jonah's father's name? Did Jonah live in Judah or Galilee? What was the king's name when Jonah was a prophet? Was Nineveh a small town or a large city? 
and how do we know? Did Jonah eventually come to his senses and obey God? What did Jonah still have to learn when God spared Nineveh? You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.